Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went to them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. This series on the gospel of God has given me opportunity to take texts that uh, have been significant in my life and just unpack them. I've told you before, I've used these texts to bolster other truths that I've taught. Um, In most of them, I haven't spoken directly out of them. And again, this text, I think, would be in that category again here in Luke chapter 24. We're talking about, in the big picture, the gospel of God, God's work to save a people. And that's what the theme of all of this is, is his work to do that and what it looks like for him to save a people. And last week, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and there the text says, let me remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you by which you are being saved and saved from their sins. And he said it's of first importance that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and on the third day he was raised from the dead. And again, he just talks about the very, the very foundation of our faith is the gospel. Without the gospel, we don't have Christianity. And if you get the gospel wrong, you don't have Christianity. You must see it. It must be the foundation, and we need to get it right. And that's what Paul felt. And last week I told you that that uh, the gospel and the resurrection was about the fact that we didn't get it right. It wasn't about us getting it right, but it was about Jesus getting it right. We talked about the fact that if Christ died for our sins, which he did, then why did he have to be raised? Why the resurrection? What's the significance of the resurrection? And we tried to drive home the point that the significance of the resurrection, certainly it was prophesied, it was foretold, so it had to happen in that sense. But in another sense, in another dimension, the reason for the resurrection is it was the reward of a job done well of a job done perfectly well. 
If there had been no resurrection, we would still be in our sins, Paul says. And the reason we'd still be in our sins is because there would not have been an adequate sacrifice for those sins. And the fact that Christ was not raised would mean that he didn't pass the test. The first Adam was tested in the garden, and he failed. The second Adam, Christ, was also tested, and he succeeded. And the confirmation and the declaration of that success was the resurrection, which was the reward of his sufferings. We looked at Isaiah 53. We'll look at that again this morning a bit. But it was the reward of the fact that he accomplished the job completely and satisfactorily, and it's enough. I hope you know that. I hope you know that the gospel is enough. I I pray you're not in some way trying to add to the gospel to make it enough. That's, that's moralism. That's man-made religion, that we add something of our own to what God did so that somehow it will be adequate. That is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. The resurrection breaks that, shatters that mold, that picture. The resurrection says God did it, and he accomplished what needed to be accomplished in his son, God the Son, And we can rest there. Now, this morning, what I want to do is move on a bit, talk a bit more about this whole theme of the gospel. And today's text is, again, one of my favorite. I've said that enough times that I probably don't need to repeat it. But of all the texts of Scripture, this text is is incredibly significant to me. And I've told you in other days, I wish I had the manuscript that Jesus was speaking off of when he came up against those disciples that day on the road to Emmaus. I do have it in a broad form. I just wish I had the outline of the broad form. We have it. We, it says that he took the scriptures and showed them how he was the fulfillment of those scriptures. But we don't have the points exactly the ones he used that day. He certainly couldn't have read the whole Old Testament to them. Now, we don't know for sure who these disciples are. There are some who believe that it, the Cleopas here was a Cleopas who would have been an uncle of Jesus and that the reason we don't hear about who was with him is because it was his wife, Mary, and that it was a husband and wife who were walking along on that road to Emmaus after all the things that had occurred. We don't know that for sure, but it's certainly possible that the Cleopas here was that particular Cleopas in Scripture. And that it was a couple that was walking along, just pondering all the events that had happened, all the things that were swirling around in Jerusalem. And and what I want to do this morning is I want to get and see, and what we get in this text is a window into the heart of, of what it must have been for almost all of those disciples. The bewilderment that they felt, the uncertainty that they felt, the fear that must have gripped them, and yet... Now, with a tinge of excitement as they heard about this tomb being empty and the reports that were beginning to circulate on that third day. But we see the heart. They they sum it up. If you look at verse 21 in this text where it says in verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That was the hope of all of the disciples. It may have taken different manifestations exactly of what they thought that would look like, but for the most part, it looked like redemption for Israel, redemption for their people. He was going to set their people free. 
He was going to take off the oppression of the Roman government some way. This, this Messiah, this one they followed, this Jesus, was going to throw off the Roman oppression. And when Jesus died, you can't say it too strongly, when Jesus died, their hopes of that happening died with him. They died with him. He was gone. This one that we had so put our hope in, this one that we had left everything to follow, so much had we left everything, many of them, that they didn't know what to go back to and and what to return to. Can you just, just get into the emotion of that moment with these disciples? I think we begin to get into it when we begin to look at what Cleopas and possibly his wife might have been feeling that day as they walked on that road to Emmaus. And the question that I want to ask this morning, this is what I want to focus in on, and and we we will do it even as we move to the table this morning, is this. What changed that? What fundamentally changed the despair of those disciples so quickly and so um, fully in such a brief period of time? What was it? What was, the, what was the hinge pin that flipped it for them? Now, certainly we could say the resurrection. I mean, that Christ was risen, that he appeared to them. Yes, I understand that. But, but what beyond that? If you dig deeper than that, what was it that connected all of this together so that just a few days later, we go into the book of Acts is what we're going to do. We go to the book of Acts. And this is a dramatically different group of people than we found represented by the two on that road to Emmaus that day. What changed it? What truth connected all of the dots for them? I think the answer, again, is found here. It's, it's in the response that Jesus gives back to those two disciples. As he came up alongside, you know the story, Camp comes up alongside them. They don't recognize him somehow. We don't know how that is the case, but they don't realize it's Jesus. And, and then you put the added dimension, if in fact this was his uncle, he, he, they still didn't understand or that it was Jesus and didn't recognize him in some way. Somehow that was hidden from their eyes. And in the midst of that being hidden from their eyes, this is the response that Jesus gives to their declaration, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Jesus says this in verse 25. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. And this is the key. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? A rhetorical question of a kind Was it not necessary? Was it not necessary? And certainly what Jesus is saying is it was necessary. And I contend that what changed the disciples was when they realized that. When they realized the thing that they thought had totally undone their world and turned it upside down was the very thing upon which this new faith was going to be built. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. The reason I think that is because of what we find now is I would like for you to turn with me to some texts in the book of Acts, and I just want to take you to three of them today. Three texts in the book of Acts. This is just days later 
A few short days later, we start to hear these kinds of things spoken by these same disciples. And in the book of Acts, chapter 2 is where we want to begin this morning. And we're just going to walk through them, read some, read some scripture together. Listen to what the scripture says here. This is Peter now. We pick up in Acts chapter 2. His sermon at Pentecost on the day when the Holy Spirit was manifest upon the church. And uh, here he stands up to declare to those around him, to preach, if you will, to those around him. And these are the kinds of things he says. Pick it up in verse 22. It says, men of Israel, my people, my Jewish people, my fellow Jews, listen to this. Hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Now, does that sound familiar, that part? Remember the, the two on the road to Emmaus? Have you not heard about this one who manifested himself by these mighty works and all of these? It sounds a little bit like what they were saying. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And now Peter comes and says, he was and is the one. But it says, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst, in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to a definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes David. He says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he goes on to give some commentary on that quote out of the Old Testament. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. In other words, David is still in the grave. He's not been resurrected. This is a, a text about resurrection. So David must have been speaking about another, and he certainly was speaking about another. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And again, why wasn't he abandoned? Because he did it. He accomplished it. He finished it. It was the reward of his suffering. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Set up my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then he goes on, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus who by the will of God had to suffer. You see how the light came on for Peter? How it all came together? He saw it. 
He saw it in the fact that was it not necessary for him to, to suffer? It was necessary for him to suffer. And then we get a commentary. It says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? That was the message. What is the message? The message that this table represents, that Christ had to suffer. He had to spill his blood in his body. There was no other way to reconcile God and man together. So there we find Peter. Again, in Peter's uh, epistle, listen to this. Don't turn there, but just listen. First Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. The prophets, they, they, they were they were speaking things that they, they just didn't fully understand. As they were led along by the Spirit of God to prophesy, as God spoke through them, they spoke of things that they didn't fully understand, but now we do. You see, the connection was that Christ had to suffer. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. The good news that it was necessary for him to suffer by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which, and then it goes on to say, not only did the prophets wonder, but even the angels themselves, even the angels of heaven connected dots in the suffering of Christ. Then we go to Acts chapter 17. That was Peter, now Paul. Look at Acts chapter 17. You move over a ways after the conversion of, of Paul on the Damascus Road. In chapter 17 of Acts, this is the one, remember now, the one who persecuted the early church, the one who was standing by holding the garments of the first martyr, Stephen, consenting to his death and going to get others and do the same to them and was intercepted on the road to Damascus by this Christ in the vision that he had there and the encounter he had there. And look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. Here he comes to Thessalonica. Paul has been converted. He's with Silas. They now come to Thessalonica. In verse 2 he says this, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, And what did he reason about? It tells us, he says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, is the Messiah, the suffering Messiah who had to suffer. Again, Paul reaffirms that it was necessary and as you read on to this, it says that some were persuaded of that, that he spoke to. And every place Paul went, some were persuaded. What were they persuaded of? That he had to suffer. That was one of the stumbling stones for the Jewish leaders as well, I think, in that day. What kind of a Messiah is this? Be done with him. And they crucified him, thinking it was over. Only 
working out the plans and purposes of God because it was necessary that he suffer. Now, in this particular text, it's interesting, as you work down this text in 17, this is the commentary about the people who came to see that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. If you look down in verse 6, in the latter part of that verse, it says this. This was the commentary. These men, men like Cleopas and his wife, possibly, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men who have turned the world upside down, what men? Certainly Paul and Silas, but all the disciples. They turned the world upside down. And what caused it when they realized that Christ had to suffer? Had to suffer. There's another illustration of that in Acts chapter 8. We go back a ways. This is actually before the conversion of Paul in the account of Acts. But in Acts chapter 8, we read another version of this happening, another place where it occurs, where one of those who followed Christ came to realize how necessary it was that the Christ must suffer. Look at it, beginning in verse 26. We pick up the story. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. It's interesting that it says he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Don't get lost here, but go back to my prayer time. Remember in the beginning, it was a come see faith. Come to Jerusalem. You have to worship in Jerusalem. Here's a Gentile coming to Jerusalem. There were a few, few Gentiles who came. Here's one that's included. It was an inkling of what was going to come more fully one day when the blessing would go to the nations. But here, this particular Ethiopian comes to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And it says, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him. And what did he hear him reading but the book of Isaiah, the prophet? And he asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliations, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, get that, beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He took an Old Testament text, Isaiah 53, and he told him about the good news, the gospel of God in Christ. That's what he told him about. And we know the rest of the story. The man says, what hinders me from being baptized, from being a follower of this Christ? And he was baptized. In every one of those cases, what was, the, what was the connecting dot? He's reading this account in Isaiah about this suffering individual. How can I understand this? And what, 
What do you suppose Philip told that eunuch? He told him it was necessary that he should suffer. This is about the Messiah. It was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Can't you just imagine that conversation between the eunuch and Philip and how the eyes of of that Ethiopian eunuch were opened and opened when they saw and made the connection that it was necessary for him to suffer. Changed everything. Changed multitudes of things. Um, just a couple, let me share them, and then we're going to come to the table this morning. It, it, this particular event certainly changed what they said. We've read about that. It, 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 it changed the way they interacted with people and all of that. But it, it changed the questions they ask. It, it, it just changed the questions the disciple had been asking up to that point. They no longer mattered. They, they, were, they, they saw the foolishness. Those questions like, who's the greatest in the kingdom? They did that a lot. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Of us 12, who's the greatest? At one point, if you remember, they, they not only talked about who is the greatest and argued about that among themselves, these disciples, but at one point, one of the mothers got involved and went to Jesus asking for special favor for her sons that they could be in the best seats. And this is what Jesus says. This is what Jesus said. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It was necessary for him to suffer. End of discussion. End of discussion. And when they saw it, it was the end of the questioning like that. These petty questions fell away from the disciples. I think it changed the means about bringing in the kingdom, the the means by which they thought it would happen. I'm convinced. I know the heart of man, I think, I know because I know my own heart. And and we we get enamored with power and prestige and privilege. And it can be intoxicating. And I'm sure that though these disciples followed Jesus, they they turned away from what they're doing. They followed him and 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 walked with him. But in those early days, they must have dreamed of grandeur. They must have thought, my goodness, what are we connected to here? When they saw the powerful things that Jesus did, the feeding of the 5,000, can you imagine realizing that you're in the inner circle of a man who just took a boy's lunch and fed all of these people and we have way more now than we had at the beginning? Can you just imagine what the conversations, and maybe they were too embarrassed to have the conversations, although probably not because of some of these arguments, they certainly must have thought it. What are we connected to here? What are we connected to? It's why I think there was such devastation when it all fell apart. Part of the reason was the sinfulness of their hearts. They they were so slow to believe because of their own hearts. They just didn't see it. Remember Peter in the garden? You know that some of it was there because when they came to arrest Jesus, what does Peter do but take out a sword and slice off a man's ear? I mean, they saw this kingdom coming by force. 
And they had the one who was able to do it, that they were following. They, they knew that. But they didn't fully understand, did they? Because Jesus turned to Peter and he said, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Remember that cup that Jesus looked into in the garden? He went on to say, do you, do you think I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled? The questions, the petty questions just fell away. The way they thought the kingdom was going to come in fell away. It wasn't going to be by the sword. It, it isn't by the sword that the kingdom comes. We're going to talk next week, Lord willing, about some of the means by which I think Jesus wants that kingdom to be built through his people. Colossians chapter 1 is a text tentatively I'm planning to go to next week. I'm not going to say a lot about it this morning. We don't have time. But that's where we're headed to that text. The fact that it is not to be by the sword. The gospel is not by the sword. But go back to this text now as we come to the table. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? How then should those scriptures be fulfilled? What scriptures? We've read some of them, but listen to one. Then we're going to come to the table. This scripture. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
The father shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. Remember last week we said out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, the father shall see and be satisfied. That's the resurrection. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It was necessary for him to suffer. It was. And when the disciples saw that, it changed everything. I hope it's the same for you. I hope that you don't run over text like I just read. But you cherish what he has done and what this table represents to us. And you realize it's your only hope. If the Father had called those legions of angels, there'd be no reason for us to be here right now. No reason at all. In fact, there'd be reason for us to go out and eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up, because folks, that's all there is, and what comes later is worse. Much worse. But that's not the gospel. The gospel of God is that he did suffer for all who will trust him for all who will put the full weight of their hope in him and in his suffering, that it was enough to satisfy the Father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we don't take lightly what we're going to do now because it is so weighty. It is so weighty to to eat and drink here today of what you gave us to remember that it was necessary for you to suffer. And I pray, Lord, that our souls will be strengthened in that and helped and encouraged, just like the disciples were encouraged, just like... They turn the world upside down because of that truth coming to bear in their lives. I pray we would be that kind of people. That, Lord, it would just change everything for us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that that you will just continue to dwell with us here at this table. In Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers are going to come, or the elders are going to come and help us to serve these elements this morning to you in the pew. If you're visiting with us, if you're new among us, we have open communion. You see the invitation in your bulletin. You're welcome to participate in it. If you can live under that invitation, um, we certainly want you to consider that invitation. Know what you're what you're doing. But we have open communion. We welcome you if, if you're resting in all this represents to, to take, take heartily today. Take with gratitude.
But we also understand if you're visiting and new and this is a different way of doing it, if you want to pass those elements by, we understand that this morning. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Ask you to hold the elements and we'll partake together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever pleads and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, Tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. this morning to take and eat as if you were answering the question was it necessary yes it was necessary
This is the new covenant in my blood, is what Jesus said again, to take in remembrance of him. Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon Righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high. My Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God, my name is graven on His hand, my name is written on His heart, I know that while in heaven He stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Without the shedding of blood, Scripture says there can be no remission of sin, forgiveness of sin. But not just anyone's blood. Certainly the Old Testament sacrifices weren't sufficient. They had to be given year after year after year because they were only to give a picture of a coming sacrifice true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world but by being slaughtered himself by shedding his own blood 
the blood that the scripture says by a single offering, by a single sacrifice. You who are in Christ have been made perfect forever even as God is perfecting you. You've been made perfect forever because Christ gives us a righteousness by which we are seen as perfect, a perfection that only he could accomplish. And the only way to accomplish it was that he had to suffer. Take and drink and be grateful. We're going to sing the gospel as we close this morning. Will you stand with me? that we know that his death was sufficient. Go in God's peace and be strengthened this morning. God bless you.